0: Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, scenefromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. We also live on Twitter with a dedicated podcast account, at EOSeenFrom, and use the hashtag #SceneFromAbove. Please do follow our Twitter account. it feels like ages since I've done that.
1: Yeah, it is a long time, isn't it? Yeah. How long has it been? About a month? Yeah. Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's the 23rd of Jan, 2019. And I just wanted to wrap up my payload launches from last year that I talked through. And we had a few right at the back end of 2018. And in total, we hit 339 compared to 379 in 2017. So we weren't that far off. And this year, we've already had 12 things launched, mainly Iridium satellites, the communication satellites. And I, th- I think it's worth noting that a whole heap of satellites went up on the 27th of December, including many doves. So I had a look at the Planet data, and they launched 35 doves last year, and all but four towards the end of the year. So they all went up in sort of three big launches. They've now had 331 total satellite deployments. Wow. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? yeah. Um, And they're getting an average of 800 images for every location on the
0: Earth. I hope they've updated their NAS drive. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing I was going to
1: mention before we jump into the news, it's a sort of bit news-esque. But I saw over the weekend, FISAT1 that's going to launch in six months' time. ESA are really pushing the, the boundaries here. And basically, it's going to be two CubeSats with an optical link, four sensors on board with an ai chip this time and the example that they're giving is that the ai will attempt to avoid clouded areas and the thinking behind this is it's going to reduce the data by a volume of two by a factor of two because they're just going to try and avoid acquiring cloudy images
0: that's fascinating so it's basically it's going to switch itself on and off depending on what it sees and analyzing whether or not it thinks that's cloud uh,
1: yeah that's what i'm inferring from
0: a tweet but um Yeah, keep an eye on that. Just to totally front load the podcast with all sorts of launch stuff. I've seen a couple of tweets as well about how Australia are creating some CubeSats that they're going to put up to try and bolster their image capture capability. And I saw something today that OneWeb have got some satellites that they've now managed to get out to French Guiana. So they're going to be launching next month, which is basically trying to take internet connectivity up into space. It's not directly Earth observation, but it's an interesting, concept i think
1: so shall we shall we continue shall i continue tracking the launches do you think it's going to be another record-breaking year
0: i i like this i like monitoring this and i think we should carry on well uh, we i think you should carry on doing it <laughs> <laughs> um, just because it's interesting looking at the rough trends, it's not as if we're writing down the numbers and, and doing anything scientific, but just anecdotally, it would be interesting to know whether or not we're going to get a lot of things in the middle of the year or at the end of the year or wherever. Mm,
1: yeah, won't be tired to do anything scientific. <laughs> okay, cool. Let's have another look in 2019. Right, let's do the news then. 23rd of January, 2019. We can't avoid the biggest news, I think, Worldview 4.
0: This is a a real shame, I think. To be fair, though, I've not really ever used any Worldview 4 data. So maybe it hasn't impacted me quite so much. You've used Worldview in the past, haven't you?
1: yeah absolutely i mean this is a sensor that went up late 2016. worldview 4 was originally goi 2 before digital globe bought goi so it's not got all of the spectral bands on it that worldview 2 and worldview 3 have just trying to recall yeah panchromatic at 31 centimeters so there's only worldview 3 doing that at the moment now so it's a big loss for vhr data putting my economics hat on which is <laughs> not a very big hat i should have. i should admit but Maxar, who owned Digital Globe, their share price has really suffered.
0: Oh, that's interesting, because I was thinking that it's bad news generally that the satellite has been lost, but the number of applications that are built on the back of the supply of data from systems like that, I'm assuming that there must have been quite a few GBDX products and, and applications that have been developed that were using that, that data, and a lot of those would have been commercial. So yeah, I can understand why their share price would be affected by that.
1: I remember talking in the past with somebody about if this is the case, if a, if they lose a satellite, why isn't when they launch a satellite, the share price doubles? Yeah. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk to uh, someone involved in the sort of business side of the, the value of this market so that was worldview four very sadly we've lost and i really hope that the guys working in a digital globe are not too badly affected yeah
0: as we're talking about loss i'm going to jump in here and talk about the loss of a geospatial portal called the global land cover facility i don't know if you ever used glcf it was hosted by the university of maryland it was one of the first sites that, from where you could get various different types of NASA data. They did post a notice about it saying that the GLCF has had a very good run since 1997. Originally, it was funded under NASA's Earth Science Information Partnership. Subsequently, it was maintained to support our NASA-funded research activities, especially those concerned with Landsat data. We feel we have attained what we wanted to accomplish, and now it's time for us to move on and explore other ventures. In a way, that this makes complete sense. There are a whole plethora of different platforms from which you can get different types of data. Yeah. Personally, I think it's a shame that it's going, but that's just because of its history. It'll be interesting to see, as time goes by, which sites, portals, and which platforms sort of stay the course, and which ones fall by the wayside.
1: There's been a lot of news coming out of ESA since the turn of the year. And the budget forecast or the budget domain came out. What really struck me was the 5.72 billion euros for the budget for ESA in 2019. You know, a number so big, I can't even comprehend it.
0: <laughs> no, but if they put it in my bank account, I'll start to try and comprehend it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but Earth Observation takes the largest chunk of the money, at 24.3%. So about a quarter of all this money goes to Earth Observation. This is a huge investment.
0: So does it break it down any more in terms of like, are new satellites included in that? Or is that, do you think that's sort of just downstream stuff? That'd be amazing. Can you imagine the stuff that could get done with that amount of money?
1: I'm sure it is in there somewhere. It's interesting to see these figures. It's really admirable, the stuff that I hear coming out of Europe about data and thinking about the industry and and the business. It's a global market, it really is. Um, I wanted to mention a little bit about Satellogic as well, who've announced that they're going to launch 90 small sats.
0: Where are they from? Tell me a bit about them.
1: Yeah, they're Argentinian company, I think. Okay. Their headquarters is out of Buenos Aires, and they have a manufacturing centre in Uruguay. And they're a little bit like Planet, but they're going... For higher resolution, they're going to do hyperspectral imaging as well.
0: Oh, excellent. My prediction from early 2018 pays off, even if it is, like six months late. These
1: are going to be interesting times.
0: Okay, cool. Tristan Quaif has released on GitHub a Python interface to a REST API for providing access to MODIS and VIRS subset V-I-R-S. I just thought this is really interesting because we're always mentioning Landsat and we're always mentioning the Sentinels. And I just thought it's two different sensor systems here that we have mentioned and we do talk about, but maybe we should... Just sort of mention them a little bit more sometimes on, on the podcast. Go and check out Kristen's GitHub page, uh, which I will put a link to in the show notes, because it just shows you the types of things you can do with his uh, Python interface. And then one of our Twitter followers, Patrick Gray, who included at Eocene from in a tweet that he made, was telling the world about a series of tutorials on remote sensing and GIS using python that he's put out on his uh, github page and i have downloaded these and i've gone through the first three i think and they're really cool and i just want to say thank you to patrick a for creating these tutorials um and b for highlighting to at eocene from that they exist huge huge credit to- Patrick
1: for I mean, this is significant work. Sharing this kind of stuff. I really admire people who go out and and do this stuff because it just adds to the body of knowledge.
0: I just wanted to mention Patrick's tutorials there, because if there's anyone else who listens to this and they do something that I think is worth sharing with the listenership of Seam From Above, then they also should tweet at from, and we can try and get a conversation going online. So I've got a news story about the Anac. Krakatau volcanic eruption that happened at the end of December, I think. Basically, the Indonesian volcano collapsed and created a a devastating tsunami. But what this story is doing is trying to explain how ISI satellite has been used in order to penetrate the the cloud and the, the ash cloud and, and see a bit more about what's happened on the island itself. Actually, we now have so many satellites up there in various different constellations that we can get lots and lots of data.
1: Yeah, I think also there was a pretty nice optical image in early January. from. Okay planet.
0: And I think the thing that's been interesting for me about this is that satellite imagery is just the go-to basically for for a lot of the media outlets who are trying to explain what's been going on and demonstrate that to their readership or or whoever. But also that Earth observation data is being used both to help the aid and the relief efforts that are are going on there, but also to try and drive uh, the science in order to understand why it happened and what the implications of, of it are. So you've got two different use cases from a single technology, effectively. I think there's a, there's a lot going on in this that, in a way, we sort of need longer, I think, than a, a news story to unpack the types of issues that are being raised by it.
1: I think we'll call that the news.
0: So this episode we have another um, interview and it's going to be an interesting one because it's a slightly different topic from what we usually talk about. So first off, Kai, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Marlin maybe?
2: Yeah, thanks very much Alistair, it's great to be on. Uh, My name is Dr Kai Bird, I'm Director of Research at Marlin Maritime Technologies. We're a very small micro SME based in Liverpool in the UK so we're five employees at the moment and we were founded in 2013 and our primary customer base is ports and harbors and what we do is basically we write the software for port and vessel traffic management systems we take radar we take cctv cameras we take ais data we combine all that data and present it to the operator so that they can make good decisions in the port environment Um, we deliver training um, we deliver various hardware installation, um, tide gauges, wave wave sensors, all that kind of stuff. Okay. About 2014, we realized that um, from doing some background reading, that radar could be used for more than just vessel detection.
0: This is what I saw at a, an event where I saw you talking about radar in a shipping container. That, that's the thing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, so it, it started out like that. That was actually some of our early experiments trying to get the kit up and running in a place really fast. So where you'd normally need a, you know, a steel tower uh, and mains power supply to mount your radar, um, we just took a 10-foot shipping container, um, mounted a telescopic mast inside, stuck some solar panels and a wind turbine on top, a bunch of forklift batteries, and there we go, we have got an off-grid <laughs> there. <That's turbo>. Easy. <crazy. laughs> so we just turn up on site with a ab truck, dump our little blue box there, uh, wind the mast up, uh, and then we can do some cool stuff with the radar. So back in 2013, Marlan funded a PhD project at the University of Liverpool um, and the National Oceanography Centre. Um, I was that PhD candidate. So that was quite interesting, going from the commercial world to the academic world and then coming back out the other end at the end of a PhD. That was quite good. So the idea that we had actually dates back to World War One. Sir Admiral Reginald Bacon, he commanded the Dover Patrol in World War I. And his job, amongst many others, was to map the beaches for the landings at Zabruga. So what he would do is sit off the coast of the continent in his submarine and measure the tidal elevation, and then periodically fly aerial reconnaissance flights over the beaches. And he would take photographs at timed intervals. And if you know the time you took the image and you know the height of the tide, you can start to map the beach contours according to the tidally driven waterline moving up and down the beach. We basically took this idea and said, well, a ship's radar gathers an image roughly every two and a half seconds, depending on the rotation speed, uh, the antenna speed. And so if he can do it with an aerial photograph every couple of hours, we can probably do a pretty good job on mapping beach topography with the ship's radar.
0: So is, is this why you're using radar rather than say a drone collecting lots of photography? It's just yes. it's so rapid
2: Yes, you've hit the nail on the head there because the status quo in the coastal survey industry is uh if you think of it the the environment agency does sort of annual airborne lidar flights okay, and a lot of the councils will base their decisions on how to manage that bit of coastline based on these annual flights. <laughs> yeah, This is incredibly dynamic zone, so it's quite difficult to make decisions about patterns of erosion or accretion based on annual measurements. So what they'll often do is they'll supplement these annual measurements with essentially a man-with-stick survey. So surveyors will go out with a differential GPS and they'll walk up and down the beach on profiles that are normally spaced anywhere from 500 meters to a kilometer. And then when they're designing their coastal defense interventions, so seawalls or rock armor or anything like that they'll basically feed these profiles in to the designs of the seawall which in our opinion and the opinion of a lot of scientists is an incredibly poor way of doing it (laughs) okay Yeah. what what we offer is a data service to the councils where if they've got an area of particularly acute problem like long-standing erosion Uh, Some of our customers are losing 10 or 15 metres of beach a year.
1: Wow, 10 to 15 metres
2: loss. Yeah, yeah. in a lot of cases around the world, this annual loss of sediment is being covered up by real large-scale beach nourishment. You see this on the eastern seaboard of the United States. There's a paper come out recently which basically worked out that prior to 1960, uh, beaches were eroding at some number of metres per year. And then because of the real focused beach nourishment efforts from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, those numbers have actually switched now to the average being an accretion of about five meters a year. But that's obviously
0: hiding the underlying trend of beach erosion. I saw in the news that there's a beach over in Ireland that I think had disappeared, then it reappeared and now it's disappeared again or something.
2: Yeah, so we see, we see an awful lot of this on the pocket beaches and bays on the south coast of the U.K. as well. You get really dramatic beach rotation within, within the bays themselves. And so obviously this makes it really difficult to design a seawall that's got to last 100 years.
0: So what's the plan for monitoring using a system like this? Would you monitor certain seasons more so than others? Or do you have to have a year's worth of data? Or could you do like two weeks and that would give you enough?
2: Our busiest period, if you like, is definitely over the winter. So a, a lot okay. of... You know, when the winter storm season rolls in, a lot of councils and coastal engineers, they see that time as the most important because it's incredibly difficult to capture a pre and post storm survey using traditional techniques. So you've got to know when the storm's coming. You've got to get your survey guys out there to do the profiles before the storm happens. And then you've got to mobilize quickly afterwards after the storm happens. And this all depends on whether the tides are in springs or neaps. Can you access all the beach? Can you not? Uh, you can't often fly drones in stormy conditions because yeah. the wind's strong. So there's a whole, a whole bunch of factors that basically prevent you getting a good picture of what's our worst case scenario. Because worst case scenario is the beach erodes, the uh, the storm erodes the level of the beach to such an extent that it actually undercuts the seawall, and then you can get damage and collapse of seawalls, and bad things
0: can happen. I don't know much about maritime radar. Is it a specific wavelength or, or frequency that it uh, pings out at? Because I know what sort of spaceborne radar systems yeah. collect at. I'm just wondering if there's any sort of crossover between the two.
2: Yeah, there is a fair bit of crossover. The systems that we use are typically X-band radars. Oh, okay. Nine point four to nine point six gigahertz are gem antennas that we use. That's because the wavelengths of the radar waves are centimetre scale and they interact with the capillary waves on the surface of a, of a wind-roughened sea surface, which are also centimetre scale. So you get really nice reflections from rough sea surfaces. This is a real problem in navigation. Normally they throw all that data away because they're looking for ships. Right,
0: yeah. That's the data that we want. <laughs> and so sort of how, how far can you go? How many kilometres of beach would you be able to, to monitor with something like this?
2: So the system we use can instrument out to about six kilometers. Oh, wow. Okay. Get good results within four to five, and then it starts to tail off as you, as your power drops off with range. Even
0: so, that's a decent-sized beach. By UK standards, it is. Yeah, so you're covering a good 10 to 12-kilometer
2: stretch if you think of it as a 180 degrees from the shoreline. Okay. Where yeah. The, the main issue that we have is shadowing at longer ranges. So height is the final frontier with our deployments, because obviously once you get out to a few kilometers and you've got some lumpy sandbanks, they start to shadow quite a lot of the area behind them. So this is where I was really interested in trying to bring in some of the satellite data, but I'm not an expert, so we are working with companies such as and Martai, uh, to try and to try and bring in some of that X-band SAR imagery and try and supplement our data services with some of the stuff that satellites can do. Because you can use a lot of similar techniques to get this information out. Where our systems prevail over satellite techniques is that temporal resolution.
0: Um, Andrew, do you have any questions about sort of the analytics?
2: Yeah, it's just really interesting,
1: mesmerizing. I did 10 years in oil and gas. One of the big challenges in transition zone was getting depths. And really, it was the cash till of the operation, you know, because we had to work out whether we were going to be able to use vibra trucks, these massive trucks, or we we're going to use explosive sources or mud guns or anything like that. Have you looked into the Persian Gulf area or the Arabian Gulf?
2: Not so much, although it is it is a target market. As I mentioned, we, we are a real micro-SME.
1: I sort of wondered how
2: portable your equipment was. How, how fixed is it? The portable system that we use, as I mentioned, it is in a shipping container and everything, all the solar panels and the wind turbine, it all essentially folds down and is stored in the container itself. It is incredibly portable. A lot of our customers actually, they want the system in pretty much full time so we also operate a, a a lighting column deployment if you like and that that is literally just a street light column um with the radar mounted instead of a Instead of a streetlight
1: how secure is it I mean you know, when we talk about satellites and stuff like that you know we don't have to worry about the satellite getting pinched.
2: The risk of vandalism is obviously one that's quite high in our mind and whenever we have a comms failure and we <laughs> we can't work out what's going on <laughs> right, we have a bit of a panic as someone thrown a brick at the radar <laughs> but the, the box is covered in signs you know saying uh, this piece of scientific equipment is monitoring waves, currents, erosion, accretion. It's there to protect your homes from the sea. Any problems, ring this number. And actually, we've found a really positive public engagement. Oh, that's good. The local newspapers really really like, oh, this blue box has turned up on the the prom uh, and it's doing this, this, and this. Um, And it's been a really positive thing, actually getting the community involved in actually watching the beach. Um, There's a really good initiative over in Australia at the moment called Coast Snap. It's a citizen science project whereby they've mounted these little wooden stations that fit a smartphone and they encourage the public to take a picture of the beach every low tide and then they crowdsource these low tide pictures and they work out how the beaches change from that because often the people who live there you know they're out walking their dog every morning they they understand how dynamic these coastal areas are and they'll often say you know oh this great big 15 meter tall concrete wall is just it's too much it's over engineered for what happens on this beach this beach has been changing for the last 40 years like as long as the people have lived there
1: it's interesting isn't it when sensors are sort of fixed in situ you can really engage with the public i mean i have seen this thing in brighton which records air quality at a big road junction and someone hooked up a raspberry pi and phillips light bulb that changes color and every time the emission went above the world health organization's particulate mattered standards it would go red
2: Absolutely. Building these thresholding and alarm systems into environmental sensing is something that's super powerful about remote sensing techniques in general. So our ultimate goal is to have a dashboard that shows the real-time state of the coast. And eventually that'll be accessible for the public. You know, They'll basically have a 3D model that they can fly around in, You know, maybe using WASAD controls, or we've even thought about augmented reality.
1: One of the sort of questions I really wanted to ask you was, do you have any sense of, or any idea of the sense of the value across the different resolutions of elevation models? So we, we start at an SRTM demo. I appreciate it's not coastal, but which is free effectively from the usgs all the way through to lidar yeah which you know as i'm sure you've got a good appreciation for it's pretty expensive mm-hmm. where do you see what you can do in terms of the sort of not directly the price but its sort of value that it can add
2: in terms of the value that's a really interesting question it's ultimately about resolution um, not just spatial but also vertical so, for example, your LIDAR surveys might claim to give millimetre accuracy, but does it really matter if it's millimetre accurate if then it changes on the next tide and you're not doing another survey for another year?
0: Yeah.
2: In our view, that isn't where the value in remote sense, in, in terms of what the remote sensing can offer comes but in. So
0: is your output
2: maps of change, or is it... Our, our output is a series of, of snapshots. Right, so okay. Theoretically, you can produce one every tide, so every 12 hours. Practically, that's a bit too much data for our customers to deal with. So we normally take the average of every week or every two weeks, depending on what they want.
0: Right. Okay.
2: So we'll produce a, a digital elevation model of, of the intertidal area um, and the subtidal area. Depend, there's different techniques. Yeah. And then over time, those are concatenated into a movie that shows how the beach has changed. But in terms of value, we've actually, we've actually got a really good case study. Um, one of our first commercial customers was Sefton County Council, and they have a real erosion problem just north of Liverpool. And what they've got is a great big training wall that actually diverts the course of a local river. And that training wall is actually also acting like a big groin that prevents the longshore drift. And so when you get a storm, the waves over top of this training wall erode the area behind it. But then... The training wall itself is stopping the natural flow of sediment to the south. So we were able to see with the radar system how when you get a wave event at a certain tides and the waves propagate straight over this training bank that they thought was acting like a breakwater, we were able to see that that was when the erosion happened. And we were able to then say, well, a seawall potentially is not the solution to this problem because it's a chronic sediment erosion issue, and actually, some rock armour and beach nourishment might be just as effective per linear metre of seawall. It can be anywhere between ten and twenty thousand pounds. Wow!
0: I'm conscious of time. Are there any applications outside of sort of beach profiles that you are interested in, or that you've been working on? Yeah, one of the
2: more interesting projects that we've involved been involved in recently is um, the ornithology side of things. <laughs> So the radar can also detect birds um, in the intertidal areas. A lot of these are protected zones. They're quite important in terms of the ecology of the area. And one of the issues that the coastal construction industry faces is that in a lot of places they're simply not allowed to do any construction work over winter for fear of disrupting the migrating birds. Okay. Now the coastal engineers will tell you, well, actually the birds don't mind the big yellow diggers moving up and down. What they mind is people and dogs so we're actually doing a project at the moment where we're using the radar to work out if the birds are being disturbed by the machinery and the construction work or by uh, people on the beach on the other hand as i mentioned before we our, our issue is really range and shadowing so any even if it's lower temporal resolution if there are any other remote sensing techniques, be it um, interferometric SAR or series of SAR images that can produce elevation maps, which I know is possible. If those can be produced at similar resolutions, which our system is a three meter resolution, those could be really helpful in kind of providing a framework or a backdrop, if you like, for our highly high temporal resolution data.
0: Our time is up, I'm afraid. Oh, it's it's brilliant. Really interesting, I've got to say. Thank you for coming on.
2: Yeah, brilliant stuff.
0: I think there's so much more we could ask you about in terms of sort of analytics and, and software and all sorts of other things. But it's been brilliant to have that that introduction to it.
2: Thank you both very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: just wanted to say as well that i'm going to be in munich at the end of february at the big data from space conference that the european space agency are hosting out there so if you listen to the podcast and you spot me there come and say hello and we can have a chat about something It'd be really cool to meet up with anyone who's out there who who listens to the podcast Okay, if you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then drop us a line through Twitter using at or our personal accounts at AJG Jogger and at map underscore Andrew. Thanks for listening. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. That's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a hark back to the old BBC
1: six episodes in a season situation comedy.
2: Is not an easy one to walk through, so take me with you, and you don't have to go alone. The life is born electric walking past you, if I could ask you, pick up